This is the Nasty Gambanis. Welcome to the TCF World Podcast. Uh, this is episode 37, and I'm here with my colleagues, Michael Wahid Hanna and Dan Benaim. And we are here to talk about the nitty-gritty nuts and bolts of progressive foreign policy. Thanks for joining us. Thanks Dan. for having us. Thanks. What we're what we're doing today is we're starting a conversation on this podcast that we expect will extend over a series of podcasts over the summer and fall. So this is the first of many. I want to start just by asking the two of you what's missing from the, you know, the very loud and and, and prolific conversation that's happened around the last year uh, uh, about progressive foreign policy. Well, I'll, I'll start. And I think um, the conversation is a negative one for the most part. It is about what is wrong with American foreign policy. And that's a good conversation to have. We definitely, in particular right now, need to have that conversation. Uh, and so we know fairly clearly about some of the things um, many people are against. Um, they were against the, you know, overturning the JCPOA and the Iranian nuclear deal, uh, the, against the current escalation vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran. It's less clear um, what that affirmative vision looks like. What is U.S. foreign policy supposed to do? You know, we're for diplomacy, okay. Uh, so once you get beyond these kinds of um, somewhat vacuous phrases, you have a whole messy world to deal with, and and these kinds of um, uh, this kind of sloganeering, uh, you know, engaging in in the political uh, news cycle, it doesn't get you very far uh, about specific issues, and so I, I think that's that's the real challenge, um, and um, you know, there's there's a lot that we can get into about um, what are the ideals that animate a progressive foreign policy. Uh, what makes it any different than uh, a kind of amoral realism? Um, there's a whole series of issues, I think, that are uh, ripe for uh, discussion at the moment. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, and this is a moment when you look at the worldwide picture uh, from U.S. progressive foreign policy, there's actually a bumper crop of different visions of symposia, of essays. Uh, and what's good is that it's not just hawk versus dove. It's actually about what matters and what should animate foreign policy. And there are sort of disturbing findings in recent polls that Americans don't even really know what American foreign policy is supposed to do or why. And I think there's a reason they don't know that, because 20 years after 9-11 and 20 years post-Iraq, uh, we haven't fully articulated that we, the foreign policy community, to them in a meaningful way. Now, Trump, uh, I think it's easy to, be, to know we're against uh, the bad orange man and, and what he's in favor of. Uh, it has a way of unifying all sorts of... Uh, positions on the other side. But progressive foreign policy is a fundamentally contested concept. Uh, it can mean, uh, as Michael was saying, a kind of narrow cast uh, vision that's focused on uh, anti-militarism, on a certain sort of moral humility that looks at challenges at home and uh, sees a basic kind of guns versus butter trade-off uh, you know, between uh, America's commitments in the world of whatever nature and the investments in social democracy that a lot of us would like to see. Now, I personally think that a lot of those, it's not even really guns versus butter when you put $2 trillion of tax cuts onto the deficit. It's just kind of Republicans versus butter and a refusal to spend money on the things that actually uh, people want when they say we should do X instead of investing in the world. I think we can afford it. And the proof is in this $2 trillion tax cut. But alongside that kind of moral narrow casted division, there's also a much bigger 
uh, more capacious idea of what progressive foreign policy can be that's focused on common good, that sees looks around the world and sees competing models, authoritarian models uh, in, in China and kind of oligarchic blood and soil models propagated by Russia, and sees that as a struggle that America should be part of. I guess I would associate myself more with that second camp, uh, although I think there are certainly proper correctives in the first one. And the last thing I'd say about this is that sometimes it feels like when we have this discussion, the Middle East is entirely a world apart. And you basically, people are talking about how to protect and preserve democracy in Europe and uh, deal with this kind of authoritarian trend that they see in America or in Brazil, uh, you know, or in India, or even sometimes in Turkey on the, you know, doorstep of the Middle East. But it seems like these questions of how you promote America's values have very little actual connection to the the issues inside the region. And it's it's kind of treated as a sort of doomed world apart where we have all of these commitments uh, because of past dependency. And indeed, in many cases, we do. But that basic question of what are we for? What is What do we actually want to see as opposed to just which war do we want to and or what shouldn't be happening is sort of largely unanswered. And the kinds of things that animate foreign policy elsewhere, these questions of oligarchy, of LGBT rights becoming part of human rights, of, uh, of, of economic inequality, uh, of environmental degradation and nature and national security, too often seem completely missing as far as I can tell. We have to have, I, I think, a vision of, you know, how you go about producing change. So, um, you know, we hear a lot these days about our, uh, and, and rightly so, we hear a lot about our dysfunctional relationships in the Middle East. And of course, we still have a disproportionate focus on that region because that's uh, where we have a disproportionate uh, focus in our policy. Um, so we know that these relationships don't work. We have a, a, a bad, you know, our relationship with Egypt, uh, for example, Saudi Arabia, another one. Um, Oh, what what do you do? What is the set of policy choices, actual ones, that begins to recalibrate that relationship? Uh, path dependency is one thing. The ship of state moves very slowly. Um, you aren't going to have these massive instantaneous ruptures. That's not the way this uh, can or should work. Um, and so what I, what I would like to see uh, is a much more robust discussion about um, what does it look like to recalibrate relations with Egypt? Uh, what do we do in terms of Saudi Arabia, Turkey, the Emirates, Israel? There's a whole series of discussions about uh, the practical nature of, of diplomacy and, rela and relationships in the world that I don't think we've had yet. For me, the biggest vacuum in the policy debate post uh, since Trump's election uh, is uh, there's, there's a real absence of specifics and a real absence of, of being uh, interested in grappling with the unhappy trade-offs that we have to make if we're going to do things, even do things the same way, and especially if we're going to do things differently. There's never going to be an ideal choice for an American policymaker. Uh, and if we're trying to articulate a, a viable, serious legitimate uh, progressive foreign policy, it can't be based on pretend uh, simple uh, big picture ideas. And, and I think a lot of the, certainly a lot of the expert conversation and even some of the, the candidate rhetoric uh, makes, it, makes it sound like if we just, you know, act on our values for real, or if we just, you know, stop dealing with nasty, corrupt, violent people and do the right thing, then there's this obvious basket of choices. And I actually don't think there is an obvious easy basket of choices. And that's the, the conversation that, uh, that, that I see 
you two involved in a lot and 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 want us to sort of to to to, to encourage and spread. And and it's also possible that in in some of these choices. Um, it's a question of complicity as opposed to making massive changes on the ground, right? I mean, there is uh, a sense uh, by some that if we just have the right policy, things will get, you know, uh, inevitably better. And in fact, the choice in some of these instances might be um, uh, between... Just to keep our hands clean. Yeah, right? I mean... That, a I bad mean, outcome, but at least America's yeah, not There's a difference between uh, commission and omission, um, you know, I, I think we need to recalibrate our approach to Egypt. I'm under no illusions that that's going to have a massively uh, beneficial uh, impact on the ways in which uh, political realities, social realities, uh, and other kinds of realities are going to, ch- uh, to, to exist in Egypt. It's not. Um, and so, um, you know, it, it is a, you know, I think I, I come at this, prog- uh, you know, set of problems with um, a healthy dose of skepticism about what we can accomplish at this moment. Um, but I, I think we still have to think about uh, what we're doing, whether whether we're, we're complicit in what is happening. No, I think that's right. I mean, when you, having had the experience of deliberating on some of these absolutely head-explodingly impossible issues in the, in the situation room, you know, often from the back bench, hearing these options bandied about, this is a land of, of bad and worse options in a lot of cases. There aren't simple cures and a sort of pure fealty to our values uh, doesn't, doesn't necessarily get the job done. And when those values come into conflict, as they certainly do, whether it's against unilateral military intervention and in favor of responsibility to protect uh, lives on the ground, for example, as happened in Syria, there are, there are a series of, of horrific choices. And yet we shouldn't underestimate the power of the United States to actually make a difference in a lot of situations. I, I think we have a well-earned sense of humility when it comes to our ability to uh, exert uh, influence to, to bring about democratic reforms in the heart of the Middle East. And I think that, that certainly we have a, a record of failure on that front uh, to draw back on. But I think what you see with President Trump is that when you abandon entirely this discussion of human rights, of, of democracy, of responsible behavior, you do see partners acting differently. You do see the U.S., what, what I consider like the, the calculable cost of impunity to the U.S. interests in the region. I mean, you see that so clearly in my mind with Saudi Arabia, where at every turn they were egged on uh, by Donald Trump as they, as they took a series of actions uh, from essentially kidnapping the prime minister of Lebanon to blockading Qatar to uh, locking up their own economic elite, and at each step were encouraged and then at, went further. At the core of a lot of these disagreements within the policymaking community are unresolved questions about how powerful America is. And I, I happen to agree, Dan, with what you just said about the you know, humbling lessons we've learned about the limits of American power. Um, and Michael makes this this argument a lot about, about how we're not as instrumental as, as, as we often think we are. But I actually don't think that's a, a, in any way a settled question among uh, uh, the policy-making community or among the electorate. So part of Trumpism, so not just Trump, the, the individual, but the movement behind him that's going to survive his presidency is – uh, uh, in, in, in my view, mistaken belief, but a strong belief that America is much power, more powerful than, than it lets on. And that, you know, we don't throw our weight around enough. And if we did, we could get as a nation much more of what we want and we could make other nations do things that we want. Right. But I think that's just, it's premised on an unrealistic expectation of what it means to be the most powerful country in the world. And if you're 
expectation is that we're not going to dominate, but we are going to lead. If you understand diplomacy and leadership to be an accumulation of partial victories uh, in service of a clear goal, then we absolutely can do that. I mean, look at the Paris Climate Accord, you know, where uh, after so much failure, America and China basically came to a bilateral agreement on climate change and uh, and brought along the entire world to make a set of commitments that will meaningfully reduce uh reduce climate emissions, even with America then having conducted our own 180 and gone out of the deal. I mean, you look at the Iran deal. We can still do big things. You look at the Ebola response uh, in the last years of the Obama administration that stemmed an outbreak of Ebola. I think I think we America can still do big things in the world. Uh, the question These aren't is, unilateral dictating big things, though. I mean, the, we the can still do those, too, sometimes when we need to. But the problem is we've done them when we didn't need to. And we've tried to do some that uh, that were unrealistic or impractical. I, I do think that when it comes to the complexities of other societies and trying to to drive those societies hard to outcomes that don't reflect the endogenous circumstances on the ground, that's just an ill-conceived idea. And history is littered with examples of it not working. But you know, uh, this idea that that uh, that that Trump uh, sort of by definition means the end of America's standing to act in the world in the future or negates a track record of leadership in preventing World War III over 70 years. I don't buy, and I don't think it, I think that progressive foreign policy has a needle to thread in between this sort of overstated impossible idea of domination that sort of looks at every place where we can't bully another country into submitting to our will as a form of weakness. And then on the other side, losing track of our moral standing to act in the world and of our systemic role as a country that other countries look to to solve problems and that many countries around the world have, frankly, bet their survival on our security guarantee, and, and that's prevented a world war. We all might mean different things when we say progressive. For me, uh, a, a progressive American foreign policy, among other things, means uh, that we value alliances, international law, collaboration, not being unilateral, and that sometimes it's worth getting a little less of what we want on issue X in exchange for uh, buttressing an important alliance with one or several several countries. Uh, and that's a position that has been not always popular uh, in, in this country. I mean, so I think it's, it's grow, growing more popular again in response to the overreach of the forever war um, and of, of some of the sh- more chauvinistic moves we've seen uh, uh, in the last couple of years. Uh, but on, this, on the stump, I think, presidential candidates find it hard to say. Yeah, I mean, just to add on to that, I think what is interesting is that um, we are, are, you know, at at the end of a period in which um, American foreign policy has a series of catastrophic failures behind it. Uh, We... And I and I really Iraq, Afghanistan, the overreaction of nine eleven, torture, Guantanamo, sure, torture. all of them. I mean, you know, the, that's a pretty appalling uh, track record to look back on. And so, um, largely focused on the Middle East, by the way, despite the global scope of policy. Yes. Uh, and you know, Trump has allowed us to uh, reach issues that we couldn't before. We see now through Trump um, the ability to talk more forcefully uh, and correctly about what is still a global war on terrorism um, and its extension in various parts of the region. Um, I think we saw this with uh, the, the much more um, serious discussion about Yemen 
Um, I don't think that that's a, that wasn't a congressional discussion that would have been possible previously. Uh, Trump has allowed that discussion to begin. And so I do think the boundaries of, and the parameters of the discussion are, are different now. I, and that's encouraging. Um, but we have to fill it with something. And so that's, I think that's a great, huge task. And, and I'm, not, I'm not one to diminish the centrality still of America's role in the world. I'm amazed uh, talking to foreign diplomats um, after looking at our track record that we just talked about, um, that there's still an appetite for American leadership. Um, I'm, I'm frankly stunned. I mean, I don't know why any of these people would trust us at this point. Uh, but somehow or another, there are a lot of people that do. And so um, there is no really getting around the fact that the United States is still the most powerful country in the world. Um, but there's a lot to think about. Citizenship and its Discontents is a Century Foundation initiative that brings together dozens of researchers to explore identity, inclusion, and community in the contemporary Middle East. Our contributors conducted extensive fieldwork in the region and aim to open a new line of discussion in the Middle East and among Western policymakers. To see our research and join the discussion, please visit the Century Foundation's website, tcf.org, and click on the Citizenship tab. You'll find our research reports, interviews, podcasts, videos, and more. This is Thanasi Kambanis. Uh, welcome back from the break. I'm here with Michael Wahidhana and Dan Benaim, and we're talking about uh, the limits and potential of American power and the contours of what a new progressive uh, foreign policy might look like. Uh, Dan, you were starting to say. I, I think what, what Michael was, was getting at is exactly right. President Trump, in some ways, by, by calling into question these very basic ideas, you know, does America need allies? What, what do we owe allies? What are our responsibilities in the world? Actually has widened the window. Uh, and in some cases, by taking certain unspoken aspects of policy and speaking them, has kind of surfaced tensions that were underneath them. I mean, I, I think that one thing that he's done that, that uh, in some ways uh, the Obama administration that I served in struggled to do was to figure out how to connect uh, foreign policy and domestic policy. You know, I think... Uh, he has this kind of gift for talking about uh, challenges in the world and bringing them back to the United States. I mean, climate change, he says, I'm here to represent Par uh, Pittsburgh, not Paris. Uh, it's a disastrous policy, uh, in my opinion, uh, but it's, it's articulated in terms of domestic interest. You know, when it comes to the murder of the Saudi journalist uh, Jamal Khashoggi, he said, you know, he spoke about it in terms of weapons sales in this way that kind of surfaced the, the most ugly version of the bargain between the United States and Saudi Arabia. Uh, but we should in some way take a lesson from that abstract concept, if not the particular policies. And if we as progressives look at our country and the world and we see problems with uh, economic inequality, environmental degradation, uh, um, overrun uh, global uh, corporations that are that are uh, running roughshod over middle class concerns and communal concerns and uh, and I increasingly see a kind of technologically driven authoritarianism in places like China and the Middle East and and uh, in some cases developed in advanced countries like America and the UK and Israel you look at that picture uh, if these are the things that we're thinking about at home and we want people in the country to care about what we're doing then we have to find a way to reconnect 
domestic and foreign. Now, that may not tell you what to do on Taiwan, for example, but it, it can help you define a set of priorities and a set of, of interests that, uh, that are compelling to the American people. Now, you know, we get to this question of the kind of gauziness and that abstraction. It does matter what I think a president says on the pulpit. And you did see both Warren and Sanders in their foreign policy speeches uh, kind of go go straight at this and take their domestic concerns and internationalize them. Well, so a, com a common thread, uh, I think, in our in our arguments and, and, and our implicit critique of maybe other people's uh, positions uh, is that we need to we need to correct uh, we need there needs to be a big corrective to U.S. policy and there needs to be uh, you know replacement of bad impulses like militarism uh, uh, the forever war uh, our addiction to bad choices in the Middle East uh, those things need to be corrected and replaced with something more coherent. My fear when I listen to the progressive debate is that these correct impulses against militarism, against the forever war, against meddling badly in the Middle East are feeding into isolationism, right? Into this idea that, that really America just needs to do less in general. We do all these things terribly and badly. And the answer is to get into a defensive crouch. Uh, now, ha happily, I think, you know, we, we have some, some, some candidates who've started to, to, to not take that kind of position um, and have started to try, to try and think about what a, you know, whatever, an axis of anti-authoritarianism would look like or what an involved America would look like if our involvement weren't always through bombers. Um, and, and that's a really important first step. Uh, I don't feel like we actually have viable suggestions for what that looks like. So we're beginning to have some people say like, okay, we don't want to be isolationist. Um, we don't want to do things the way we've been doing them. So what does that, what does that mean? That's a good question uh, and a big question. Um, and there are, you know, there are real constraints at how much that change can, can happen and how quickly, even with the best of intentions. And I agree wholly that um, retrenchment alone is not is not a foreign policy. Well, it's a foreign policy. It's not it's not a good foreign policy. And it's not progressive. It's and that's my that's my next. Well, point. progressives have allied a lot with the sort of win not win without war uh, approach, which is has a lot of good elements to it, and then has some troubling ones. But there are wars that I would like to stop as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I mean, not, so not ninety of them right now. Um, yeah, there's a lot of them. Um, but you know, what is that? What does it mean then to engage in uh, in the region? Uh, talking about the Middle East, uh, where we are doing something that looks different to retrenchment. We are right-sizing our commitments and our obligations, uh, but without simply washing our hands of the region. Um, we, you know, as at the start, I was talking about amoral realism, and, and that's what I fear we could lapse into, which it, which is just simply retrenchment. We get out uh, and we're done with it. And, I, you know, I don't, I don't think that that's a, a productive way um, of, of conducting ourselves uh, in the world. Uh, but then what does it mean to care about these, uh, this set of progressive uh, um, uh, ideals, you know, such as human rights? They still matter. Uh, they should matter to progressives. Um, we shouldn't uh, then uh, simply want to, you know, if we turn to Syria, right? This is a complicated set of issues. Um, the answer isn't to just say like, Wow, regime change was bad. We're done with that policy, um, and Assad has won the war. I mean, there's a there's a whole series of policy choices yet to be made, 
Um, and so retrenchment, it only gets you so far, I think. I think, um, you know, a, a case like uh, Egypt, a case like Syria, um, there's a whole bunch of policy choices there. You know, what do we think about reconstruction in Syria, a reconstruction process that's likely to be dominated by the Assad regime? Um, you know, what do we think about the fact that other countries are beginning to normalize with, with uh, uh, almost victorious Assad regime? We have to have answers to those pretty complicated questions. And, and I think we have to care about um, some of the ideals that should undergird um, those policy choices. I also don't want to see us uh, lapse into a, a narratively um, enticing approach that constructs new uh, worldwide uh, struggles that aren't real. Um, I don't want to see us uh, uh, construct a new uh, liberal democratic order that is in worldwide competition uh, with uh, the resurgent uh, authoritarian axis. That's not what's going on. I mean, I think we do see absolutely resurgent authoritarianism. Um, it isn't one that is uh, akin to a new Cold War. So, you know, uh, narratives are important, um, but but not at the expense of uh, uh, of doing away with nuance. And so, you know, th- that's that's a harder thing to express politically. And and you do need a bumper sticker narrative for you know what is America in the world and. We had an obvious one during the Cold War. What happened in the 90s was the bumper sticker was war for uh, freedom and capitalism, and that there, there was no uh, binary choice that we had to make during that decade, really. And then after 9-11, our choice was the forever war, the global war on terror. Uh, and counterterrorism has been the, the prism and the logic for almost all our foreign policy uh, decisions, um, and that's been that's been our bumper sticker. Uh, and I think it's you know, in my view, the answer is uh, we need to think of ourselves a little bit more the way Europe has thought of itself in the last couple of decades. You know, Europe has had a lot of important influence in the world. It has rarely been sort of in the driver's seat to to, to decide uh, uh, regime outcomes in, in faraway places or in former colonies. Sometimes it's it's been militarily involved. Sometimes it has been a, a sort of catalytic uh, and active decision maker. And in other periods, it's worked to balance commercial interests with uh, political ideals. And it has crucially talked less of a of a big game right so the the policies are are more right sized to their rhetorical position now i'm not saying america should have europe's policy uh specifically we're we're different we're you know we're among other things one single unitary continental sized country and we have a lot more room for maneuver uh than this agglomeration of of uh dozens of states does but the uh uh the sort of mix of prag- pragmatic humility and values with with interests. I think that's the right style uh, for a progressive foreign policy, where we do have coherent values. For example, we should be anti-torture at home and abroad. Uh, we should be anti-extrajudicial killing, whether it's of suspected terrorists on the president's hit list, uh, or whether it's of you know regime opponents in, in, in countries we don't like. And those are value positions that we can take at relatively low cost, and it doesn't mean we have to go to war with every country that violates them. We we can just espouse those values, promote them, and and in a way move on. And and one thing that I, I think we need we we need to to do a better job of um, is 
linking the corrosive uh, ramifications of what our foreign policy has wrought to our domestic situation. What we've done in the world matters to the way in which we conduct ourselves at home. I don't think there's, uh, you know, if you torture abroad uh, and you normalize torture, um, it's going to do things to American society. It's going to do things to the way that law enforcement engages with um, with American society. Right. What happened to Eric Garner is very directly related to what happened at Abu Ghraib. And we, ne- we, we rarely make that case. And I think we must make that case because if, uh, if, if you're going to, bring some of what Black Lives Matters has, has asked for, uh, it's going to have to come part and parcel of a demilitariz- demilitarization of American political life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, this this ongoing set of military commitments has been corrosive to people's commitment to the Constitution. Um, I think you, you begin to see, you know, if today um, you brought something like the Fourth Amendment, it would fail. <laughs> Congress would not would not support a Fourth Amendment. That that kind of I, I think we need to do a better job of uh, of, of linking um, what has happened abroad to what has happened at home because um, I do think it's it's uh, it's often overlooked and it's crucially important. I am Abir Pamuk and I am a summer scholar at the Century Foundation. I am a nonprofit professional from Aleppo, and I worked in Syria during the war delivering humanitarian aid to children. Now I am finishing my studies and beginning a new career as a foreign policy analyst. Here at the Century Foundation, I am researching non-state actors and U.S. policy in the Middle East. You can see all our projects on the Century Foundation's website, tcf.org, in the World section. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. I'm here with my colleagues Dan Benaim and Michael Hanna. For this third and final part of the discussion, I want to turn to tangible specifics. So let's start with you, Dan. What should the agenda be? Sure. I mean, I think that these contested ideas within progressive foreign policy need to be surfaced, examined, discussed. And I also think that we need to kind of kick the tires on some of the uh, real and interesting proposals that come out, whether they're... uh, Proposals that would put climate change and the fight against climate change front and center, proposals that would meaningfully rebuild and reform the diplomatic and aid capacity of the United States, uh, or, or things that take the kinds of things that we're outraged about domestically in terms of the assault on democracy uh, and this sort of corrupt oligarchic uh, idea that we see Trump uh, pursuing and, and internationalize them. I mean, just to give the smallest example that I hope we see candidates pursue is tax collection. Like how much money is stashed overseas in sort of non-transparent arrangements that not only belong in the coffers of the United States Treasury, but also uh, enable all sorts of of corrupt activity and tax avoidance. And why are corporations that that well corporations and and individual tax avoidance and money laundering? We've systematically eviscerated our own government's capacity to investigate these kinds of things. Uh, the investigatory staff at the IRS, as I understand, has been systematically shrunk in a politicized way. Uh, I think that the United States should be talking about how to make sure that wealthy Americans uh, pay the taxes that are due, not only by changing the tax code, but by enforcing the ones that we have. And I think that working bilaterally with other countries to make sure that people pay what they owe uh, is, is something that I would like to see people pursue. To get to your bigger point about 
uh, progressive policy in the Middle East, I sort of see five big questions that I think need answering. And the first is, are we in or out? And if we're in, why are we in? Now, people sometimes ask this in terms of sort of how far out can we go, but I actually think uh, this affirmative choice of like, you know, I joke about it as sort of vision 2030 for good. Like what, what would a, uh, a U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East that actually looked beyond the next election cycle to say 10 years from now, if we could wipe the slate clean, where would we actually want to be and what would we be doing there? Seems necessary. The next question that I see is how do we rectify Trump's blank check for partners that are behaving badly? Now, that's Saudi Arabia, but it's also a lot of other countries. And these countries will be used to alliance correction alliance well well they're not mil- treaty allies and so I, I tend to think of them as b- partners but i think this question of of uh what happens after uh years of impunity under trump uh when a new uh a new president says you know what saudi arabia or or uae or egypt we are not going to give you as much as you got from trump whether it's on yemen or on other issues and we're going to expect you to do more in return i think that's going to be quite a difficult conversation and thinking about what that means in practice uh, and, and how it's going to actually work. And, and what is the animating concept? Is it about reinstituting a sense of restraint, about deferring? Uh, you know, are we concerned that these relationships are going to function one way under Republicans like Trump and a different way under Democrats? Are we thinking about how to use our leverage in a strategic way to mend them, or are we really trying to downgrade them? That's a big question with a lot of different uh, permutations, but it's one that I think is necessary. The next one on my list is what comes next with Iran. Uh, what does a serious Iran strategy look like after Obama negotiated an Iran deal and Trump shredded it? Uh, is this another policy that's going to hinge depending on the party of the president? Or um, I guess it's hard to say where Trump will leave this policy file uh, by the time he leaves office. But uh, should the Democratic approach be pumping the brakes on a kind of Saudi-led legion, regional initiative here? Uh, that's based on countering Iran and the Ikhwan, or uh, or is that part of how we actually share a burden with other countries? And the the fourth on my list was Israel, which is I think we just the question of whether Democrats have reached an inflection point in policy in Israel after ten years of Netanyahu, or whether uh, or whether in some ways uh, that represents one part of uh, the Democratic constituency and another is in favor of continuing the kinds of policies that we have. Uh, is one that's going to be surfaced and answered, I think, in this debate as long as, as uh, some of the key players are, are loudly voicing a different position uh, within the primary. And then the last question is the one we've talked about, which is what are we actually for? I mean, is we're talking about preventing wars. We're talking about preventing terrorist attacks. We're talking about restraining autocrats. Uh, but is there an economic vision that we're in favor of? Do we think that in a, a region that's going to face climate change, we can use uh, U.S. markets or U.S. Uh, expertise to meaningfully help people navigate this kind of challenge? Is it about people-to-people ties? Uh, is it about uh, these kinds of universal values that we've been talking about that somehow never get a hearing, in, including LGBT rights? You know, is there is there a way to sort of look over the horizon and, and, and actually say, well, what would things look like if they were, if we were actually trying to, to do something good instead of making sure that bad things don't happen? Uh, and so if we can just answer those five questions, in or out, how do we deal with partners behaving badly? What to do about Iran? Uh, where do we go with Israel? And, and what are we actually for? Then I think it should be just a simple layup to uh, make an effective progressive Middle East policy. Well, I didn't cheat and write out my, my priorities on a piece of paper. So uh, I might not have a, a five-point plan. Um, but I think uh, you know, one thing that, has, that, is, um, that is key um, is forced posture because I think a lot of our 
a lot of the way in which we conduct ourselves in the region is based on those uh, th that set of path dependencies. Um, and so much of that is focused on, on contingencies. Um, the military has arrayed itself in such a way uh, because it is preparing for uh, potential operations, a lot of which is focused on Iran. Um, but our infrastructure is, is, is one of an empire uh, in, in the region, uh, and it's dominated by the military. And so um, the, the predominance of, of that set of tools uh, impacts how we act in the region. Um, and there is a kind of self-sustaining momentum um, that is always looking to uh, create uh, more optionality, uh, to create um, greater flexibility in the face of a whole series of contingencies. Um, and, and I think we have to uh, find a way to break that. Prior to the Carter Doctrine in the late 1970s, we didn't think of the, of the region in this way. Um, and certainly uh, uh, after... And now we're doctrinally committed to to policing the entire Middle East, actually. Right? Effectively. To securing um, the flow of you know, energy. You know, it is the, you know, we Navy. see this with the Carter Doctrine. Um, it explodes after the first Gulf War. Um, and, and now it's become institutionalized in a way that, um, you know, as I said, we're, we're arrayed as an empire. Um, and we oftentimes function as one. Uh, and so, you know, thinking about a way not to, to abandon the region. Um, I do think what Dan said at the very start that, you know, the ways in which you disengage matter and can be destabilizing if done badly. Um, and in some ways, there's no way to do this particularly smoothly. Um, downgrading commitments on, on the security file, on security files across the region would be hard um, and would leave a lot of uh, um, leave behind a lot of animosity. Nonetheless, it's something we really do um, have to think about. I mean, if we remember the ways in which the Fifth Fleet became, um, you know, front and center to our approach to Bahrain in 2011, um, it you know it, it undercut all of our leverage um, and tied us to a set of policies that. Um, I think we're bad ones. Uh, and uh, that's not to say that we don't have real security obligations in the region. It's important. Um, but we don't have the right balance now. And, um, and thinking uh, more clearly about what that could look like um, and how best to do it in a way that doesn't uh, uh, you know, destabilize the region further. Well, and any transition causes instability. And this is you know, one of the problems of ending the endless criticism and actually proposing alternatives is that any any well-meaning alternative is going to create its own problems, right? So we have to own that if we propose reforms and, and a rebalancing and a downsizing of our military footprint, inevitably, so you know, some somewhere a bad thing will happen as a result of that. And and I think you know, in my view, that's that that's okay, right? We you know, it's it. I I would say. Uh, military bases and arms sales cannot be the driver of our foreign policy anymore, nor can these really uh, stupid forever wars like the war in Afghanistan. Um, and so if we, if we change that, it means we will lose influence in some places. We will risk maybe the Bahrainis uh, ending our, the lease of, of, of the Fifth Fleet, and um, that's something that is okay. It might be expensive. Um, but these are things that, that um, are good for us if we're willing to 
uh, if we're willing to have some political courage. Uh, now, to do this right has political stakes. And one, so one thing we need to do is correct our dysfunctional is it alliance or partnership with Israel. Uh, and That's partnership. Alliance. Partnership. <laughs> <laughs> um, Leave that in. <laughs> so, uh, so, so we need to correct the. You know, we have two, well, three, uh, really complicated, dysfunctional relationships in the region: Israel, Turkey, Saudi Arabia. I mean, there are lots more. You know, Egypt dysfunctional Gosh, Egypt too. Feels so left out. Yeah, Egypt is not as important, right? Uh, but, but you know, but e Egypt's on the list for sure. Pakistan was. I think now we have sort of corrected our relationship with Pakistan because we no longer expect the the unrealistic things from it we used to. But they are the kind of political headache that most uh, most veteran politicians would say, "Why bother?" You know, the upside's low. The the political risk is real. Why bother? And this is the kind of thinking that has led us into decades of sort of lurching from small dysfunction to small dysfunction with these with these uh, uh, sick partnerships and a coherent vision for an America that is you know a force for stability as defined by some level of rights um, and prosperity defined as some level of of equally distributed uh, markets, uh, you know, that that's a vision that, that we could that we could push for, but it would absolutely come with costs. I think in a funny way, uh, Trump has broken a lot of those taboos by doing exactly the opposite in this hyper polarized environment. I mean, I think that you don't have the strong congressional response to the Khashoggi killing if you didn't have Trump essentially uh, acting like a defense lawyer for Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. You, you wouldn't have had that level of reaction on Yemen either if you hadn't had this very extreme uh, reaction from the president that kind of nakedly treated the issue as though uh, the, the as though we all sort of understood what was the fine print, which was that Saudi Arabia can do whatever it's wa it wants with no consequences uh, because they give us a little bit of money for arms sales and invest in Uber or because we buy their oil. Like you know, And, and I think Americans said, oh boy, if you're going to actually say how you see this, and Congress in particular said this, we're, this is not actually, now that you're talking about this, this is not something we want. And similarly with Israel, I mean, it's true that there's bipartisan support uh, for certain parts of the security relationship and for a, a deep political partnership, but that support doesn't necessarily extend to being anti-Palestinian. Personally, I would like a president who embraces some parts of this political and security partnership and puts some limits on what we're willing to do when we think another country is acting badly. That seems reasonable. And I think Trump in his strange Overton window widening, widening ways of kind of like adding, you know, pushing the debate uh, wider to the margins may allow that to be possible. I mean, the, 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 and, and the previous phase to this, I think is very important. What, what Israel and Saudi Arabia both did uh, to the Obama administration during the Iran deal is an instructive lesson that I'm not sure I see people taking often enough. I mean, I know the people who are involved with it might uh, remember it, but uh, America acting in good faith as a good partner uh, promoted a policy and really tried to bring these partners on board. And these partners directly and overtly undermined our democratically elected government in its in a major security policy matter uh, and, and acted partisan in our country. Um, and I would love to see a corrective. And I think there is like a deep burning anger, not just among Democrats about this, but among 
uh, uh, foreign policy savvy Republicans who see that this this cannot stand because we are, you know, we're a, a sovereign country and a superpower. I actually, I have super strong thoughts on this, and I, um, patrons and clients function differently. Um, and, uh, you know, it should have been a red flashing warning sign that there were basically five countries in the world who were very excited about Donald Trump becoming president, four of whom are in the Middle East, you know, Russia, Israel, Egypt, the Emirates, you know, maybe Bahrain. Um, that's kind of it. Um, you know, anybody who shared uh, values and interests with the United States was mortified and and uh, and rightly worried about what uh, this administration uh, um, would do. Um, those fears have proven correct, um, and the level uh, of partisan and uh, engagement in uh, in American political life uh, on the part of those, uh, uh, particularly those Middle Eastern uh, partners, um, uh, deserves a punitive response. I I one hundred percent believe that that kind of behavior cannot be allowed to stand. Um, and, and if that's uh, a partisan action, so be it. Um, they aren't uh, allowed, uh, again, patrons and clients function differently. Um, and it should um, begin a conversation about what are these relationships for? I mean, why are we engaged in this? Why are we giving aid? Why are we giving diplomatic cover? Um, what are we doing that these partners uh, who are effectively client states in, in many cases um, are then uh, mucking about um, in politicized ways in our domestic political life. I find it uh, like a, a red line um, that was crossed and, and cannot be. And I do think there has to be a price to be paid for that. Look, I agree that there was a red line that was crossed there. I, I agree with that. I guess I look at it and I feel that partners are allowed to disagree. And the question is where and how that disagreement goes. And when it comes to influencing the elections of another country, that seems to me to be a very clear red line. When it comes to speaking in Congress uh, against the will of a president, that also I thought was uh, over the line significantly. Uh, but I don't think that countries uh, have to agree with the steps that we take uh, because we think that we took them in good faith. I do think that there has to be some comedy in how that disagreement is expressed. And that wasn't there and that was a tremendous problem. Well, so I think we, we put a lot out here on the table and this is a great, a great opening salvo and what I hope will be a, a very rich uh, series of conversations in the coming months. Uh, I think on, on future, future podcasts, we're going to be d digging deeper with, uh, with some other guests as well into some of the uh, uh, specific issue areas that we mentioned today from the politics of foreign policy or Israel-Palestine to, re, you know, repositioning in the Gulf or how to wind back the forever war. Uh, and, uh, and I hope that what we, what we produce here is some really actionable ideas for uh, progressives out there who are asking the next question, which is, okay, if, 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 uh, if we manage to change things, what should we uh, change them into? So thanks uh, for thanks for uh, joining me, uh, Dan Benaim and Michael Wahid Hanna. I'm Thanasi Kambanis, and uh, we look forward to continuing this conversation on uh, the next DCF World podcast. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit tcf.org 
or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.